Good evening, and uh, this week, instead of focusing on the parsha of the week, we are going to be focusing on um, a, a topic which is very, which is very relevant uh, to our current situation. Uh, unfortunately, there's a war going on in Israel, and unfortunately, the beginning of that war was a terrible pogrom that not only featured, I guess, the typical uh, features of a pogrom back in Europe, etc. But uh, also, unfortunately, over 200, close to 250, about 238, that's the official number, I don't know what, what the exact number is, 238 uh, uh, people were, uh, were taken hostage, many of them Jews, some of them not, but all of them were taken hostage because of their connection to the land of Israel, they were taken by the barbarians in Gaza, Aided by many other people who do not officially fit the bill as official terrorists, but they're also included in that. And um, we've got a very serious problem. It's a very, very terrible situation to be in. And uh, I'll tell you one thing for sure. In this class, we're not going to give specific guidance or analysis of how the Israeli army and the Israeli leadership should deal with the current situation. I'm sure they have to, whether they're doing a good job or not, is up to history to determine. Uh, but um, we'll, we'll leave it up to them to decide how to go about this. Today, what we are going to focus on is what can you and I and all of us here and all Jews throughout the world, what can we do um, in connection with this horrible, horrible crisis? So, um, just like in everything in life and in all situations, we can always turn to the Rebbe's teachings and learn something relevant and refreshing and uplifting and inspiring um, that can give us a proper focus on how we as individuals and as a community should react and should respond to the situation. All right, so before we get into the actual talk that we're going to be learning today, today we're going to be learning a mimer, a Hasidic discourse that the Rebbe delivered in 1978, approximately, yeah, 1978. Um, and I'll give a little bit of background about that. But beforehand, let's talk a little bit about the concept of um, hostages or captives in Jewish history. Uh, the unfortunate reality is that from as far back as the times of the first Jew, Avram Avinu, already the first Jew was already dealing with captives, hostages, that were taken because of their connection with Avram or some type of uh, proximity or, or relationship with Avram. Uh, page number three, source one. Abraham heard that his nephew was taken captive. Now, the Torah says that he was taken captive because he was in the area of Sodom, and when kings, when, the, when, a, when an axis, axis of four kings came and conquered the area of Sodom, they took Lot as a captive. However, he was a high-profile captive because Lot actually had a very strong resemblance to Avram, and when they captured Lot, they went around and they spread the word that they actually captured Avram. It's a very interesting thing. So even though the actual war was not against Avram, and even though the actual fact that Lot was taken captive wasn't necessarily connected directly to Avram, however, uh, Avram's name got mixed into it because of, uh, because of Lot's relationship to Avram. Avram was his uncle. So... Um, Avram was notified that his nephew was taken captive and he assembled his charges. Those who were born in his home, 318 of them, and he pursued the captors until done. He divided his men against them at night and smote them and pursued them until Chova, which is to the north of Damascus. He brought back all the possessions and Lot, his nephew, and his possessions, and also the women and the people. All right, so in the first, the first scenario, the first situation, wasn't the first actually. Sarah was also taken captive beforehand. One of the first situations where a captive was taken who had a relationship to the first Yuta Avram, we see there was a happy ending. Avram went and he fought against them and um, he brought them back, right? There was no deals, no negotiations. He figured it out and uh, obviously he had God's help and um, he released or, or redeemed his nephew. Then the story continues, uh, we go through the Torah, let's go to the book of Numbers, the Jewish people are in the desert, they're surrounded by the clouds, uh, and no one, for the most part, attacks them. The only attack that they had was right after they came out of Egypt, the Amalekites attacked them. Forty years later, Aaron the high priest passed away, several months before the end of the land of Israel, and the clouds disappeared. 
turns out that the clouds had been surrounding the Jewish people in the desert uh, in the merit of Aaron, the high priest, once he passed away, they disappeared. Um, as a result, the Amalekites came to wage war against them again. Here he calls them the Canaanites. It really was the Amalekites dressed up as Canaanites. It was a whole story over there. But anyway, let's see what happens. Source number two. The Canaanite king of Arad, who lived in the south, heard that Israel had come by the route of the spies, and he waged war against Israel, and he took a captive from them. Yep. So he has a captive. Israel made a vow to God and said, If you deliver this nation into my hand, I will consecrate their cities. God heard Israel's voice and delivered the Canaanites. Israel destroyed them and then consecrated their cities and called the place Hormah. Who was this one captive, Rashi tells us? A single maidservant. It's fascinating. The Jewish people were attacked by the, by the, by the Amalekites who looked like the Canaanites. And um, all they did was able to, they were able to take a maidservant, not even a Jewish woman. She was a maidservant, a non-Jewish maidservant. However, the Jewish people didn't say, look, it's the cost of war, cost of battle, just leave her there. No, 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 they went out to war uh, to return that, that maidservant as well. Okay, um, and by the way, this whole concept of captives and hostages, it continues through the, the, the Bible, through the Tanakh. But now we're going to go into the Talmud. We'll go into the time period of the destruction of the Second Holy Temple. The Talmud tells us an interesting story, source number three on page three. The rabbis taught... It happened once that Rabbi Yehoshua ben Hananiah visited a large city in Rome, in the Roman Empire. The people there told him about a young Jewish child in prison. With beautiful eyes and an attractive appearance, his curly hair arranged in locks, Rabbi Yehoshua went and stood by the entrance to the prison. He said, as if speaking to himself, he quoted a verse from Isaiah, Who gave Jacob for a spoil and Israel to the robbers? That child was in the prison, that child answered by reciting the continuation of the verse, Did not God, he against whom we have sinned, and in whose ways they would not walk, neither were they obedient to his law. Right? So he's like responding to the complaint. Rabbi Yeshua is complaining, how could it be that Jewish people are taken captive? And the child responds by continuing to quote the verse and say, Why are you quetching? We deserved it. We sinned. Rabbi Yeshua said, I am certain that if given the opportunity, this child will issue halachic rulings in Israel as he is already exceedingly wise. He said, I take an oath by the temple service that I will not move from here until I ransom him for whatever sum of money they set for him. They said that he did not move from there until he ransomed him for a great sum of money and not even a few days had passed when this child issued rulings in Jewish law in Israel. Who was this child? This was Rabbi Yishmael ben Elisha. So it was during the temple period. The temple had not been destroyed yet. But there was a lot of tension and problems between the Romans and the Jews. And this child came out. His name was Rabbi, Rabbi Shmuel ben Elisha. And I believe he ultimately became a Koyen Gadol. But he was also one of the greatest sages of his time. So a story about a Jewish child in captivity. And how a Jewish sage ransomed him and took him out from captivity. Um, okay. Uh, page 5. So, we see here that the, the reality of captivity is as old as the Jewish people. And we also see here the importance of getting the captives out of captivity. We have Avram, who went to war. The Jewish people went to war in order to bring a captive back. And here we have a situation where captives were taken, and the Jews ransomed the captives in order to buy, buy their freedom as well. Now, the Talmud makes a statement that Pidyoin Shvuyim, redeeming captives, is one of the greatest mitzvahs. When you're talking about the mitzvah of tzedakah, the mitzvah of charity is the greatest mitzvah. But in the mitzvah of tzedakah itself, there are many different causes that, uh, that are needed for that, that tzedakah money, that charity money is needed. Uh, there is, you know, feeding the poor and getting clothing for them or marrying off, uh, you know, an orphan, uh, an orphan uh, girl. Uh, there are many different causes. And one of the greatest causes is the mitzvah of redeeming captives, redeeming those Jewish people that are in prison. Now, where do we learn that from? Where do we learn that this is the greatest? Why should it be the greatest? So we'll start off with a, with a verse from Jeremiah. 
So Jeremiah was a prophet, a very unpopular prophet, very, very unpopular. Um, in fact, even before he was born, God sent a message to him that you are going to be the one to say prophecy about the destruction of the temple and the dispersion of the Jewish people into the exile. Uh, he didn't, I mean, obviously no one wants to be the, the harbinger of, of bad tidings, of, of bad news. And also, if you put yourself in the in the you know I say the perspective of the Jews then, and they were surrounded by enemies, and the Babylonians were coming, and they wanted to fight with them, etc. And here you have a prophet of God, basically saying that doomsday is around the corner. Uh, people didn't want to hear that. Uh, the problem is they didn't have a choice. I mean, he's the prophet of God, and he was the confirmed prophet of God, and he's saying prophecy. Also, Jeremiah had no choice; he had to share the prophecy. The rule is, if a prophet is given a message to give over to the people, he, he has no, uh, I say, he has no control over that. He has to give over the prophecy. If you go through the book of Jeremiah, it is all full of doomsday predictions and prophecies. So here, here is one of them. Here is one of them. God said to me, if Moses and Samuel stand before me, I have no desire for this people. Send them away from before my face and let them go forth. God said, that's it. I've had enough of them being in the Holy Land. They're desecrating the Holy Temple. They're desecrating the Holy Land. They've violated the Torah in such a terrible, terrible way. That's it. I'm getting rid of them. It shall be if they say to you, where shall we go? In other words, if we're being sent away from here, so where are we headed? You shall say to them, so said God, such as are for death to death, and such as are for the sword to the sword, and such as are for famine to famine, and such as are for captivity to captivity. In simple words, God is telling them, guys, from here to the next phase, it's not going to be fun. You're either facing death, sword, famine, or captivity. So the Talmud analyzes this verse. So the Talmud in Tractate Baba Batra, source number five, says the following. Redeeming captives is a great mitzvah. Rava said to Rabbi Barmari, from which verse do we derive the statement of the sages that redeeming captives is a great mitzvah? Rabbi Barmari said to him, as it is written in Jeremiah, it shall be if they say to you, where shall we go? You shall, sell, you shall say to them, so said God, such, are for, uh, such as for death to death, and such as are for the sword to the sword, and such as are for famine to famine, and such as are for captivity to captivity. And Rabbi Yochanan says, whichever punishment is written later in the verse, is more severe than the one before it. Death by sword mutilates the body, but natural death does not mutilate it. So, between death and sword, death is better than death by sword. Captivity is worse than all of them, as it includes all of them, famine, the sword, and death. Um, yeah, so that is the situation that... The, re, the, the Talmud says, why is it that redeeming the captives is such a great mitzvah? Because captivity is a reality that's even worse than death. Um, one of the most heart-wrenching videos I saw right after October 7th was of a, a father, I believe he's from Ireland. He lived in one of the, he lived in one of the kibbutzim, and um, the night before October 7th, his daughter, his daughter was staying by a friend's house. Anyway, after, after what happened, happened, he was notified that she had died. And he, tells, he told BBC or CNN, he said, I was so happy to hear that she, would, she wasn't alive. Why? Because I can't imagine what she's going through in Gaza. Three weeks later, they tell him that, no, she didn't die. She's probably in Gaza. So, you know, ju just, from, just from that, uh, you know, that interview, you can see how, how intuitively, intuitively we, we understand that captivity is, is uh, I say, it's a reality, it's even worse than death. And therefore, redeeming the captives is of the highest priority. Source number six from Maimonides, the redemption of captives receives priority over sustaining the poor and providing them with clothing. There is no greater mitzvah than the redemption of captives. For a captive is among those who are hungry, thirsty, and unclothed, and is in mortal danger. People that pay no attention to the redemption of captives violate the negative commandments. What is the commandment? Do not harden your heart or close your hand. Do not stand by when the blood of your neighbor is in danger, and he shall not oppress him with exhausting work in your presence. 
They have also negated the observance of the positive commandments. You shall certainly open your hand to him, and your brother shall live with you, love your neighbor as yourself, save those who are taken for death, and many other decrees of this nature. There is no mitzvah as great as the redemption of captives. That's how Maimonides concludes. He says, if you're looking for the greatest mitzvah possible, it is Pidyan Shvuim, the redemption of captives. And as, um, as we bring from the Code of Jewish Law, source number seven, every moment delayed in redeeming captives is tantamount to bloodshed. Okay, so, um, so we see here that in general, that our perspective on the concept of captives, number one, that we, we feel uh, their, their pain. I mean, we can't imagine their pain. Obviously, someone who has never been through it can't imagine such a thing. But we are keenly aware, and it is, we, we define it as a reality that is even worse than death. And therefore, it is of highest priority to redeem them uh, in any way possible and as quickly as possible. Um, I don't want to get into this, but it's important to point out that uh, in the, the medieval ages, um, there, there, you know, there were a lot of pirates, pirates ships, you know, they would go and they would uh, attack different ships and take uh, uh, slaves and captives, etc. And word got around that if you get Jewish, Jewish captives, the Jewish communities will pay any amount possible to redeem them. And so now Jewish, Jewish lives were, were very valuable to the pirates. So at the time the sages made a decree that you should not pay for any Jewish captive more than their value. In other words, you know, if, if the pirates are selling them like on the slave market, so yes, there is a value to every slave, and therefore you could uh, give whatever bounty is on the slave's head as long as it is as it makes sense, the same amount that you would have to pay for any other slave, but do not give more uh, so as not to uh, encourage people to take Jewish, Jews into captivity. Uh, there's also a story of one of the great Jewish sages of, I believe, the, the 12th or the 13th century. His name was the Maharam of Rottenburg. Uh, he was a great Ashkenazic um, Talmudist and halachic sage. And uh, to make a long story short, without getting into the details, he was taken, he, he was arrested. He was arrested by the government and... And the, the, the prince, the duke that had taken him into captivity, demanded an exorbitant, exorbitant ransom for him. And when he heard about it, he sent a message to the Jews, to, to the community who were willing to pay it. He said, absolutely not. If you are going to pay this ransom, so then, uh, you know, all the, all the European kings and princes and leaders are basically going to see, here's an easy way to make a buck by going and capturing a rabbi, a leader, etc., and the community is going to pay a crazy amount of money for it. And he refused to allow the community to ransom him. And unfortunately, he passed away in captivity. And in fact, his body was only buried many, many years after, after his passing. Very tragic uh, era, but it was actually a very heroic move on his part, where he basically said, I'm going to be the sacrifice to ensure that this does not become you know, the next rave or rage for, uh, for the, the, you know, our enemies to think that they can make a, an easy buck off of this. How this applies to the situation at hand, we're not going to go into that. Okay, but now let's go into um, something that is much more relevant to us, you and I. We are not uh, the leadership of the IDF, we're not the leadership of, of Israel. And so what is it that we can do, and what is our connection to the captives, and what can we do today, here and now, that can have a positive impact and help out the captives, according to Judaism. So, with that, we're going to take a bit of a, a trip down, uh, not memory lane, but I guess history lane. Um, the last time that we had a situation where millions of Jews were held in captivity was it was behind the Iron Curtain. And um, it, it was one of the largest Jewish communities that were ever uh, held hostage. They were in captivity for about 70 years. Um and it was a very terrible situation. It started in 1920. That's when the communists took over. In 1920, um, the, the previous Rebbe of Chabad, he became the Rebbe. His father had passed away in 1920. And he took over the leadership of Chabad. And uh, since at the time, much of the... It, it, is, it is correct to say that the Russian Jewish leadership imploded. It literally disintegrated 
as a result of the communist takeover and, and the reign of terror. Um, the leadership disintegrated and the previous rebel was essentially the last leader standing that was rallying his students and other Jews, whoever would listen, uh, to keep Judaism going in Russia. 1927, he was arrested, sentenced to death, but miraculously was saved from the firing squad, and then was sentenced to exile, and miraculously was released literally a week later, and um, eventually, a few months later, he left. He, he was banished from Russia, and then he was in Riga, in Latvia, and about a year, yeah, about a year after he had left Russia, so he celebrated the wedding of his second daughter. So the previous Rebbe's second daughter was Rebbe Sinchai Mushka, and she married the Rebbe. Right? Uh, the wedding was held in Warsaw. It was uh, a very important uh, affair, a very important wedding. And then there was the Sheva Brachis. After the, after the wedding, there are seven days where you continue the celebration of the wedding. And by each one of the meals, the previous Rebbe would, would obviously speak and he would share a Hasidic discourse. So by one of these celebrations was actually on the 19th of Kislev. So the, 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 the Rebbe and the Rebbets in their wedding was on the 14th of Kislev in Warsaw. And then they traveled back to Riga and Latvia uh, to celebrate Shabbos of Shavabrachis and, and, and to continue the Shavabrachis there. So it was the 19th of Kislev. And uh, the Rebbe, the, the previous Rebbe, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak, uh, he said the following. So source number eight. So this was during the post-wedding celebrations. So the previous Rebbe said, L'chaim, to the lives of the students in Russia. What should we wish them? Obviously, he's referring to his, to his students, to his Hasidim. <clears throat> what should we wish them? That we must be more united? That is obvious. Not a moment passes that I don't think of them and they think of me. God wants all the darkness to disappear. So he's basically thinking about his students that are held captive behind the Iron Curtain. The Rebbe then instructed that a telegram be sent to several cities in Russia. I don't know what the content of the telegram was, but then the writer, the one who was writing the telegram, he asked, how should I sign? So the Rebbe answered, if I sign in my name, mercy upon them. A recipient of a letter from Schneerson would be harshly punished. So the Rebbe couldn't write his name. So therefore he said, write Radstevenik. I think that's how you say it, which means a relative in Russian. In Russian. The Rebbe continued, the Hasidim are my brothers, and the students are literally my brothers, from the same mother and father. So this was during the celebration. The Rebbe is thinking about the Hasidim and all the Jews that were stuck behind the Iron Curtain. And then he, he said a Hasidic discourse, on the following verse, um, in, in the book, of, in the, it's, a, it's, a, it's actually a quote from the Talmud, which analyzes a verse in the book of Judges. Okay, uh, The verse actually comes from the Song of Devorah. In the book of Judges, there's a whole story of how the, the Jewish people were attacked, and the prophetess Devorah instructed Barak, um, who was, was a great general, a warrior, and he gathered uh, several of the tribes, and they went to war against Sisera, and they were victorious. And afterwards, Devorah sang a song. And so the following line, the following verse, comes from that song. So, so and, and, the Rebbe, and the previous Rebbe said a Hasidic discourse explaining, according to Hasidus, the meaning of this verse. So here, here's going to... Oh, so that's, that's what happened in 1920, 1928. In 1978, 50 years later, the Rebbe, uh, there, there was a Fabrengen on the 19th of Kislev, and the Rebbe said a discourse based on the discourse that his father-in-law said during his wedding celebration, during that week. So what we're going to be learning from here on is based, it, it is uh, the content of the discourse that the Rebbe said in 1978 when he was celebrating his 50th anniversary. And the theme is all about how do we deal with a situation where our brothers and sisters are in captivity? Similar to the reality in 1928, where for the previous Rebbe, many of his brothers and sisters were stuck behind the Iron Curtain. All right, so let's begin. So source number nine, it's from the Talmud Bavli, from the tractate Psachim. Rabbi Oishia said, 
what is the meaning of the verse, the righteous acts of restoring open cities in Israel. All right, so, so Devorah was, was, was saying in her song that for the longest time the Jews had to be in closed cities because the enemies were attacking them. But now that we got rid of the enemies, now we can have open cities, right? We don't have to be stuck behind high walls and, and who knows what. So the right, so it said, Tzitkas Pirzoinoi Bi Israel, the righteous acts of restoring open cities in Israel. The word open cities in Hebrew is Pirzoinoi. So Rabbi Yoshia is going to take the word Pirzoinoi and is going to change around a few letters over there. And this is what he learns from this. God did a kindness to the Jewish people by dispersing them among the nation. Pizron is the same letters as Pirzoinoi. So you're able to take that verse, which speaks about the tzedakah, the righteousness, the charity that God did to the Jewish people. But what is that charity? Not just that he made open cities in Israel. Fine. But we could also apply this to a different reality. That in fact, when the Jewish people are exiled from Israel, God didn't exile them all to one place. He didn't gather them all into one ghetto. No. He dispersed them. It wasn't just called an exile, it was called a dispersion. Some went here, some went there, some went to the north, some went to the south, some to the east and some to the west. You have Jews in Asia, and Jews in Africa, and Jews in Europe, and you have Jews in the Americas, all over the place. One might think, that's a terrible thing, right? Wouldn't it be better if you take the entire family, uproot them from Israel, and bring them all to Babylon, bring them all to Iraq, bring them all to Europe, whatever it is, bring them all to one place that can support each other. Rabbi Yesha says, no, no, no. There's actually a tremendous tzedakah. It's a great charity and a great kindness that God did for us, that when He took us out of Israel, when we were sent into exile, it was a dispersion. Why? Rashi explains, a kindness by dispersing, it would be impossible to annihilate them all at once. Interesting concept here. The Jewish people, when they were in Israel, they were surrounded by enemies who wanted to destroy them. And for some time, they couldn't. But then when it came time for the Jewish people to be sent away from Israel because of their sins, whatever, whatever the reason is, came time for the destruction of the temple and the dispersion, God sends them out to, to the nations. God knows that the nations are a bunch of wolves. And the one thing that the wolves want to do is to take the, the sheep and tear it to pieces. And God knows that in the nature of the world, in the nature of humanity, the non-Jewish populations in every era, at some point there's going to be some dude that's going to want to destroy the Jewish people. And if they would all be in one place, there would be that possibility. Can you imagine every single Jew in the world lived in Poland? No one would have survived 1940 to 1945. There would be no Jews left. But that's not what happened. In fact, if you go through history for the past 18, 1900 years of our exile and our dispersion, you'll see that there were always these huge crises in different places. And just let's say, for example, in Spain, right? The golden era of Spain. There were so many Jews in Spain, etc. And then, boom, they were all forcibly converted or they were sent away, etc. There were other communities throughout the world that were able to take in those Jews. Um, the Holocaust, so unfortunately, six million were killed in Europe. But there were Jews in America, there were Jews in South America, there were Jews in Israel, etc. Who were safe, who were untouched. And then those who survived were able to be taken in by those communities as well. And like this, if you go through Jewish history throughout the exile, you see how the fact that we were dispersed was actually our greatest blessing. Okay? So that's a very basic reading of this idea in the Talmud. But it gets much deeper. So, uh, page 8. Here we are reading quotes from the Rebbe's discourse from 1978. And he is working off of the discourse from 1928. The Rebbe Ayatz explains that there is a positive aspect to the Jewish people being spread out in various countries. It can happen that Jews in one country are oppressed and not allowed to study Torah and observe mitzvot. Some mitzvot cannot even be observed even if people are willing to risk their lives for them. For example, 
When the government doesn't allow the four kinds, right? The lulav and the esrig, the hadas and the arava that we need on sukkahs. So if the government does not allow the four kinds to be brought into the country for sukkot, then the mitzvah simply cannot be observed, regardless of how much one is willing to sacrifice for it. Matzah, for example, there's a possibility, no matter where you are, to figure it out. Right, I mean, as long as you're not in jail, right? But it, but it, you know, if, if you're in a place where people have flour and there's water, etc., there might be a way with tremendous, tremendous self-sacrifice to arrange matzah. Fine, but esrogim don't grow everywhere. In Russia, there was no etrogim. Etrogim didn't grow there, and so if the government doesn't allow etrogim to be brought into this country, you just can't do it. You, you could be willing to do all the sacrifice in the world, just it's not available. It's over. So, so what now? If there are Jews, and th- let's think about Russia for a moment, communist Russia. You had millions of Jews stuck behind the Iron Curtain. And to suggest that th- th- there were etrogim that got through. My, my father was born in Russia, and his, his, there's a whole story. His grandfather found out that there was, a, there, there was a set of the four kinds in Moscow. Three or four hour walk away from his home. So he... Uh, Early in the morning, he set out and he walked to the, this person's home. He made a blessing on the four kinds. And then he wanted his family to be able to do the mitzvah as well. So he asked the man to loan it to him. He said, but I need to have it tomorrow. He said, don't worry, you'll have it tomorrow. He, this was the holiday. He's not allowed to drive. He's not allowed to go on a bus or a tram or anything like that. But he's allowed to carry. Because on a, on a holiday, if it's not Shabbat, you're allowed to carry in a public domain. So he, he, took the little, he took the four kinds. He kind of hid it under his coat. And he walked back for four hours back to... His home. And all the, all the members of his family, all the family members, they made the blessing on the four kinds. And now he has to bring the four kinds back because he promised the, the guy that he'll have it the next day. So he walked back four hours and he delivered it back and he has to go back home. So he walked for about 16 hours that day just so that he and his entire family should be able to make the blessing on the four kinds. That's, that's you know, sacrifice. That's a sacrifice that, you know, it's, it's a tough sacrifice, etc. But at least it's doable because it's available. But most Jews, most of the millions of Jews behind the Iron Curtain didn't have access to an etrog at all. So now what? It's like this. Not only is the fact that the Jewish people are dispersed all over, does that save us from annihilation. It's even deeper than that. When Jews, I'm continuing in the, in the top paragraph, when Jews in other countries study Torah and observe mitzvot, They give the Jews that are under oppression strength and fortitude to study Torah and observe mitzvot. In other words, the Jews that are in the the free countries, and they do have access to the four kinds, and they do have access to other mitzvot, when they do those mitzvot, and when they study Torah, that gives positive energy to the Jews that are stuck in captivity, that they should have that energy as well. And it goes further, the effect of this support is gradual. First, the oppressed Jews will be able to observe mitzvot when they are willing to risk their lives for it. As there is an opinion that people are allowed to risk their lives even for the observance of mitzvot, where we are told that self-sacrifice is not warranted, right? According to the Torah, you only have to sacrifice your life if it's an issue of idolatry, adultery, or murder. You don't have to sacrifice your life in order to eat matzah or in order to whatever. But under certain circumstances, we're allowed to do that as well. You're allowed to sacrifice. The next step will be that the oppressed Jews will no longer have to risk their lives for a mitzvah observance. The final stage will be that they will have no impediments at all and will be completely free to observe mitzvot in an expansive manner. As the sages teach, a person that observes the Torah in poverty will eventually observe it in wealth. And, um, you know, on the theme of, of the Jews of Russia, we do see that it was, it was an impossibly long time that they were in captivity and that they had a tremendous challenge to observing mitzvot. But eventually... It was over. Eventually, communism fell. And today, Jews in Russia are able to observe mitzvot. Um, are able to observe mitzvot. So what's the, the practical ramifications here with regard to our brothers and sisters that are currently in captivity by the barbarians? Um, so like this, where they are, it's a terrible place. And they probably can't do most mitzvot, if any, if any mitzvot at all. However, the mitzvot that we do, and the Torah that we learn, and the charity that we give, that strengthens them. That gives them uh, the, the strength to you know, go through what they're, what they're going through, and to know 
that that um, Jews around the world are thinking about them, and that they're thinking about them in ways that, that are meaningful. And when we do mitzvot, and we do, you know, we fill up another seat with another Jew for Shabbos, and we ensure that another Jewish woman lights Shabbos candles, or that uh, you know we 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 say an extra uh, psalm in Tehillim, or we uh, you know buy a pair of tefillin for a Jew that doesn't have his own pair, whatever that might be. That sends tremendous spiritual energy to our brothers and sisters that are in captivity. Um, there's a okay. Let, let's continue. So now, like this, in every concept in Torah, there is when it is, you know, when when it's playing out in a very physical sense, right? You have Jews in captivity, and we who are thankfully not in captivity are able to do mitzvahs in support of those that are in captivity. But does this message apply even when, thankfully, no Jews are in captivity? Could it be possible you have Jews living in freedom, they could do whatever they want, be wherever they want, etc., and yet they should be in captivity? So with this we continue on page page 9. Since the Torah is eternal, applying it, and it applies in every place and at every time, it is clear that the kindness in being dispersed is also relevant to places where there are no restrictions on mitzvah observance. Thus far we learned that the fact that Jewish people were dispersed all over, that provides us the, uh, the capacity that even if Jews are, are in a place where they can't do a mitzvah, when we do the mitzvah, we're helping them. But this type of dispersion also applies to people that are actually free. We can understand this based on a teaching from the Rebbe Ayatz, from the previous Rebbe, about the mitzvah of redeeming captives. Explaining how this concept exists on a spiritual plane as well. A captive in the physical sense is an imprisoned person who cannot leave the place where he's imprisoned. In the spiritual sense, this refers to people who are in captivity of their negative inclination. For example, a business person whose mind is occupied by worrying and disturbing thoughts about their financial affairs. Such a person is a captive of their paralyzing thoughts and cannot break free of them. This captivity can even rise to the legal status of compulsion. As Maimonides writes, his negative inclination overpowered him. Right? So a person could be really in captivity to himself. He's stuck. He can't break out of a certain vicious cycle of negative thoughts, of disturbing thoughts, of, of worry, of agitation. Just can't, you can't break out of it. This is where we find the kindness of dispersion even when we live in free countries. When a Jew is held captive by their negative inclination, they cannot free themselves. A prisoner can free themselves from captivity. They can, however, be helped by another Jew who isn't a captive in this regard. This can be done even by a person who is themselves a captive in the hands of their negative inclination in a different respect. Since this person is free in some areas of life, they can serve as a positive example in, the, in these areas. Every individual has different struggles. Right? This is a fact that everyone understands and everyone knows. All of us struggle. The question is what do we struggle in? So there are two ways we can look at this. Either we can look at it in a way that we all have our own problems. We have nothing to do with each other. Deal with your issues. That's it. This person, has his issue is that he's very worried about his business. This person is very worried about the fact that he has no business. And this person, everyone has their issues. And everyone is just in their own bubble. What is the, what is the tzedakah here? God gave everyone a different problem. That means, if I have a problem in one area, that means in a different area of life, I don't have that problem. I'm not captive to that issue. And therefore, I can be a positive example to others. And I can be an inspiration to others to pull them out of their captivity in that issue. And the same is true about everyone. Those areas where we struggle is different than anyone else. That means that there are areas that we don't struggle. On the contrary, we excel in those areas. We're completely free. And therefore, our freedom in those areas help out others. We'll see soon the... The, the idea is like this. Why, why, why does it work that way? Why does it work that, that if there are Jews in Russia that don't have a lulav and esrig, when I shake a lulav and esrig in America, I'm helping out those Jews? Well, how does that work? Because as is explained in the Talmud, 
and in Hasidic literature, the Jewish people are like one body, right? Like one body. And so, so, so first of all, one body means that any time that, you know, there's a certain part of the body that is ill, the health of the rest of the body helps out the part of the body that's ill. I remember once a, a relative of mine was, was in the hospital and uh, they had a certain issue, a certain part of their body. And the doctor says, the good news is, is that you're young and healthy. And I understand. There's, there's a huge problem and it was a real serious issue. He said, no, since you're young and since you're healthy, the rest of your body is healthy. So the, the chances and the, and the capacity for the part of your body that is not healthy to become healthy is much better. Why? Because the fact that the rest of your body is healthy, that has an impact on, 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 the, on the unhealthy part of the body. Same thing is true about the Jewish people. We're like one body. Koimo, achas, shleimo, we're like one body. We all come from the same source. We're not just brothers and sisters. We're like one body. And therefore, if one Jew is suffering, one Jew is in captivity, a certain community of Jews are in captivity, those that are not, their health, their well-being, their spiritual health, has an impact on those that are stuck. That's why. So if I shake a little of an esrig in America, it's not as if the Jew in Russia shook a little of an esrig. He doesn't have a little of an esrig. He didn't do the mitzvah. But the, the fact that I am shaking a little of an esrig in America, and I'm making sure that other Jews do so as well, the spiritual vibes that come from that mitzvah done in freedom has an impact on those that cannot do the mitzvah in captivity. And as we said, that will have a real practical impact that gradually, eventually, they will be able to do the mitzvahs. And the same thing is true about mental captivity, spiritual captivity from within. Every person has their challenge. Every person has their problem. Every person is captive to their evil inclination in one way or another. And the fact that someone else is not captive in that same way, by them flourishing, in those areas where they are not captive to their evil inclination, that has an impact on those that are in captivity with that very specific issue. Um, let's continue. Every era in history has its specific spiritual purpose. The strongest temptations and opposition of the negative inclinations are focused on preventing this purpose from being realized. This is why the challenges of each generation are different. For example, during the generation of Menashe, king of Israel, this was during the first temple era. And during this time, people were serving idols like it was, it was really in style, by the way. They were serving idols all day and all night. What's an idol? It's a clump of nothing. It's a stone. It's a brick. It's, it's, a, it's a garnished, right? So the temptation of idol worship was especially powerful. But in subsequent generations, the inclination of idol worship was eliminated. It's actually a very dramatic story in the Talmud of how the sages, during the beginning of the Second Temple era, they decided to get rid of the evil inclination for, for idolatry. They got rid of it. And from then on, we don't understand, we can't relate to the idea that someone should be so desperate to bow down to a molten image. It seems to be the most silliest thing in the world to us. Mm-hmm. But uh, then, it was something very, very uh, popular. Extremely popular. And it was, it was a huge challenge. So in that generation, idolatry was the challenge. Similarly, every individual Jew has their personal mission in life and the strongest temptations and opposition of the negative inclinations are focused on this issue. By observing the mitzvot that our negative inclination doesn't resist so strongly, we redeem from captivity those people whose negative inclination holds them captive with regard to those mitzvot. We're continuing on page 11. The kindness God did for us by dispersing us among the nations is by giving us the ability to redeem captives in the spiritual sense. Redeeming captives is the highest form of charity and is the greatest mitzvah of all. By God dispersing us amongst the nations, what does that mean amongst the nations? Among different types of negative inclinations. God said, look, I'm going to give you all challenges, but no one's challenge is going to be the same. And where one person is captive, the other one is free. The one who is free is able to schlep out, is able to redeem the one who is captive. Um, but it gets even further. It goes even deeper. Uh, let's go to page 12. 
There are some times that a Jew is not able to do a mitzvah, not because he's in captivity, and not because he has an evil inclination that is kind of uh, making him so crazy not to do the mitzvah, but sometimes it's just impossible to do the mitzvah. And what's the example for that? There are many mitzvahs that are relevant only in the land of Israel. For example, the mitzvah of Shemitah, of, of, of the sabbatical year, once in seven years, in the land of Israel, we're not allowed to work the land. It's a very beautiful mitzvah, very important mitzvah, etc. But that mitzvah only applies in Israel. It does not apply in America, does not apply in Europe, does not apply anywhere else in the diaspora, only in Israel. Now every Jew has an obligation to keep all the 613 mitzvahs. But if I'm a Jew that lives in America and I don't live in Israel, so how can I do the mitzvah of Shemitah? How can I do the mitzvah of sabbatical year? The same concept is employed. We're all interconnected. The Jews of Israel, by them keeping the mitzvah of Shemitah, they are giving me that spiritual vibe, that spiritual inspiration that comes from the mitzvah of Shemitah. I benefited from it as well. Let's see it in the Rebbe's words. The assistance one one person's Torah and mitzvahs provide for their fellow is not only when the fellow is forcibly prevented from observing a particular mitzvah by government decree or the force of the negative inclination. The assistance is also relevant when Torah law renders it impossible for a person to observe a particular mitzvah. For example, an example of this is Jews who live outside, uh, Jews who are living outside the land of Israel and are unable to observe the mitzvahs that only apply in Israel. The fact that all Jews around the world are a single entity means that when the Jews in Israel observe the Israel-specific mitzvahs, this is beneficial for the Jews living in the diaspora as well. Amazing. So we're all interconnected. And there are some mitzvahs we can't do because we're just not in the right place at the right time. Sorry, we're not in the right place. We're not in Israel. So the Jews that are there, they have a responsibility not just for their own mitzvahs, but by them doing the mitzvah, they're helping us out as well. They're giving us the benefit of that mitzvah as well. And it goes even further. It's also about time-specific mitzvahs. There are some mitzvahs that we cannot do because we're just not living in the right generation. For example, the mitzvahs of the sacrifices of Karbonis, the sacrifices that were offered in the Holy Temple. Even if you live in Israel today, you live in Jerusalem, you can't bring a sacrifice. You can't bring the, the, the Passover sacrifice. You can't bring a Thanksgiving sacrifice. You can't bring any of the sacrifices. Why? There's no Holy Temple. No. So how do we have the benefit of those mitzvahs? Don't worry. Let's continue on the bottom of page 12. There are also mitzvahs that can only be performed during the Temple era. Today, even the Jews living in Israel are unable to, to observe them. But because all Jews in all time are a single entity. So we're not just a single entity with all the Jews that are alive today in 2023. We're a single entity with all the Jews dating all the way back to Moses, all the way back to Abraham. Those mitzvahs that are temple dependent and were fulfilled by the Jewish people in the temple era benefit the Jews of the exile era. So what do we see from here? What what do we see from here? We are not suggesting that others can do mitzvahs for us. No, no. <laughs> Every one of us has an obligation. Whatever mitzvah comes our way, whatever mitzvah is relevant to us in our specific place, in our specific time, we have an obligation to do the mitzvah. But realize, realize, that the mitzvah that you do does not only affect you. The mitzvah that you do helps others as well. Specifically others that are unable to do the mitzvah because they are forced not to by a government decree, by they're, they're in captivity, whatever that might be. Or there might be those that are not doing a mitzvah, they're not succeeding in a specific area of the service of God because the evil inclination is just so powerful and they're in captivity to their evil inclination. So the mitzvah that we do helps them. And the reason is because we are like one body. And that one body, everything that every part of the body does helps the other. And the ramifications of that are that even those mitzvahs that we can't do, not because we're forced not to, but because we're just not in the right place, the Jews in that place, when they do it, that helps us. And the same thing is true about time. That our mitzvahs impact the Jews of all time, and their mitzvahs impact us. So we're part of a, you know, it's already three and a half thousand years of Jewish people serving God and, and observing the Torah and the mitzvahs. We're part of that awesome and amazing group of people that spans generations and spans the globe. And we'll end off on page 13. Um, this was actually a letter the Rebbe wrote in 1976. 
I believe it was during the, the time period of the Entebbe operation. So there was there was a lot of captives, right? And unfortunately, Israel, with, with many, many miracles, was able to redeem those captives uh, from Uganda. And the Rebbe made a very big push for the concept of uh, increasing Jewish security, not just with security guards and locks and all of that, but that we should increase in the in the spiritual security of the mezuzahs. And so let's read this this letter in in, in the in the Rebbe's uh, Igris Kaidesh. It's it's a it's a collection of the Rebbe's letters. At this time, every Jewish home is in special need of security. True security comes from God, as the verse states: "God protects the city." God also gave us a specific instrument of protection for our homes, the mitzvah of mezuzah. All of the Jewish people are a single edifice and responsible for each other. Right? This is the, the theme that we've been talking about until now. As a result, since we're all one body, in addition to providing divine protection for the specific house it is attached to, every kosher mezuzah on any Jewish door contributes to the security of all Jews everywhere. When I have a kosher mezuzah on my door in El Paso, that helps out the security of all the Jews in Israel and all Jews around the world. Every Jew could use more security nowadays. And my security, my, and my added security with the kosher mezuzah on my front door and all the doors of my home that need to have a mezuzah in El Paso can have a positive impact on, on, on every single Jew wherever they may be. Every Jewish woman is the mainstay of her house and every Jewish girl is the future mainstay they therefore have the unique merit to promote the mitzvah of mezuzah so that all doors in their homes that require a mezuzah should have one and also in the homes of their neighbors and acquaintances. So the takeaway from this is, you know, the question is, what could I do for the captives today? I mean, we can feel hopeless. What can I do? I can go out there with a sign and scream and shout and that's all, it's all good. Uh, but, but, but sometimes we're looking to see what is my action here in El Paso, so many thousands of miles away, what could it contribute to the well-being and to the security and to the eventual redemption of these captives? And the answer is that all of us are interconnected. We're one body. And every mitzvah that we do, that helps them. Those that are currently in captivity and they cannot do mitzvahs, our mitzvahs are a benefit for them. And we should have them in mind when we do more mitzvahs. And since, um, and, 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 and more specifically, since today everyone could use an added dosage of security, we should uh, take a good look at our home and see if there's any doorways that could use a mezuzah. Make sure to purchase kosher mezuzahs. If you haven't checked your mezuzah in a very long time, you can always reach out to me. We'll come over to the home. We'll open up. We'll see what's going on in the mezuzah. Make sure that it's a kosher scroll. And if not, change it out. Make sure that it's a kosher scroll because the more security that we add to our homes, that will add to the overall security of all Jewish people throughout the world and especially in the land of Israel. May God Almighty help us that all Jews around the world should be safe and that our brothers and sisters who are currently in captivity in Gaza should be redeemed immediately and not from some not from some deals, not from some deals, but they should be redeemed without deals and they should be redeemed hearty and healthy. And thank you all for joining us tonight. Amen. Thank you, Rob. Thank you. Unbelievable how this world is small.